Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. This is a very special concert for us in that it's the opening concert of our 2011-12 season. And to open the season, I thought it would be lovely to begin with a concert of, of English music, entirely of English music, featuring two of the greatest works from England of the 20th century. In addition, I thought it would be lovely to start the concert with a a short work by a living British composer. Since the two uh, major works on the program are both by composers who are men, I also thought it would be nice to start with a a work by a young English woman composer. And so I happen to know about a a wonderful young composer who's been living and working in uh, the United States for the last many years, but is born and raised in England, named Anna Klein. In fact, even though she's barely 30 years old, she's already one of the two composers in residence of the Chicago Symphony this year. So uh, there's a work of her a rather early work called Rewind. It's a work that she claims was inspired by the image of analog videotape going backwards. So it's a rather jaunty kind of lively piece. It also, I should tell you, was commissioned by a very avant-garde New York dance company called the Hysterica Dance Company. So that may actually give you quite a clue to the fact that it is a rather wild, bumptious ride that lasts about seven minutes. One of the aspects of it that I like in particular is that at the very end, Anna introduces a little bit of, of tape, of electronic music that sort of invades the sound of the orchestra somewhere after six minutes or so and brings the work to a rather thrilling, crunching finale. So here now to open our all-English program, the opening concert of the Albany Symphony season, Anna Klein's Rewind for Orchestra. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Anna Klein's Rewind for Orchestra. The orchestra was the Albany Symphony conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The two major works on this all-English program are, in fact, uh, works by two of the towering figures of 20th century English music. Uh, This cello concerto by Edward Elgar, which completes the first half of the program, and then the entire second half of the program is occupied by really perhaps the most popular of all English orchestra pieces, Gustav Holst's The Planets. It was particularly interesting to me that these two composers lived and worked at very much the same time. And I, I gather, I assume, knew each other fairly well. Uh, Holst was actually best friends with another major figure in English music at this time, Rafe von Williams. And Elgar was kind of the grand old man of English music in the early part of the 20th century, having been born in 1857, some years before Holst. Not too many years, though. They happened both to die in the same year. And these two works are both from that era around the First World War. And yet Elgar occupies a very different place in English music from Holst and from the other composers in that he really was the figure who more than anyone else sparked the great renaissance in English composition. As you probably know, uh, in the Baroque period, English music loomed very large, thanks largely to the figure of the major English composer of the Baroque period, Henry Purcell. But uh, in those couple of hundred years between Purcell's death and Elgar's birth, 
even though the English continued to be huge promoters of music and there was an incredibly rich musical life in England, uh, it usually involved composers who were imported from places like Italy or other parts of Europe. Think, for example, of, of George Friedrich Handel, one of the most English composers, who, of course, was born in Germany. And so for about 200 or so years, there was very little English composition that sort of rose to the level of being of really international importance. And yet in the late 1800s, Edward Elgar emerged as this wonderful young composer, particularly in works like his uh, Enigma Variation at the very end of the 19th century. Uh, in I think it came out and was premiered in 1899. And works like The Dream of Gerontius, major choral work, and other of his early works that owed a great deal to the influence both of Wagner and Brahms, the two major figures of the mid-19th century. And so Elgar sort of emerged as this great figure, and uh, his works were m much loved and applauded, and, and he became an incredible cultural hero in England in the, the very beginning of the 20th century. And he really spawned this incredible uh, rebirth of interest in English music and uh, this whole group of young composers who grew up around him and, and after him, including, of course, Holst and von Williams and William Walton and Benjamin Britten a little bit later. And Elgar uh, actually lived long enough to, in a way, sort of become a little bit dare I say, or to feel a little bit obsolete. By the time the First World War came about, uh, Elgar was being rather neglected. I mean, sort of hauled out as this grand old man as a, a sort of monument of English Edwardian respectability. But his, his music hadn't really changed appreciably in terms of its, its tone and its tenor and its harmonic makeup and its melodic material. And he pretty much uh, didn't quite give up composing, but, but uh, his, his output slowed dramatically during the war years. He concentrated mainly on chamber music and, and small work. Uh, and then at, at the end of the war in 1918, he actually had some major throat surgery. I think it was actually to remove his tonsils, which for a 61, 62-year-old man at that time was a very serious uh, operation. He lived through the operation. Uh, his wife already was very ill with what would be her final illness. She would die about a year later. And uh, with all this terrible stuff around with the, the terrible loss of the war uh, and with his own health issues and his wife's health issues. Uh, interestingly, Elgar did decide to write a new piece. In the hospital, actually, while recovering, he sort of thought up this beautiful little tune. That he thought could perhaps become a concerto, but a concerto for what instrument? And I, I believe that, although I don't want to ascribe too much programmatic content to this piece, I believe that, that this work is very much informed and influenced by the war and by the terrible loss of the war, by the loss of, of all the young British men and young, young British people and, and not so young British people, also by the terrible loss of, of all the horses. Elgar was a huge horse lover and actually went to the races to the very end of his life and loved to go to the horse races. He was very bothered by all the, the horses that were slaughtered in the war, uh, as well as the, the human beings, the terrible toll of the war. And um, he, he decided to set this beautiful tune for cello, and he wrote a work that I think is among the most magnificent works for cello and orchestra in the entire repertoire. I really rank it up there with the Dvorak as one of the greatest of all concerti. And it's a very different work from many, most of his earlier works. His earlier style was very extrovert and very uh, public and very full of, of big gestures and of this kind of gigantic Wagnerian uh, chromaticism. Uh, some of his earlier works were very long as well. His symphonies last almost an hour, as did his, his violin concerto, another magnificent earlier work, 50 minute long, but a, a gorgeous, gorgeous work in spite of that length. In this work, he really 
pared everything down. He really tried to get to absolute essence of what he was trying to say. And so it's a very intimate, very introspective work. And I was interested as I was working on the piece in preparation for this performance, uh, I hadn't done it in more than 20 years. And I, I was struck by how incredibly delicate and fragile, in fact, the orchestration is, that the orchestra is used very sparingly and makes extremely sort of delicate sounds. Uh, at the same time, it's an incredibly heartfelt work and, and in, in certain ways, a, almost a painful work to listen to in certain places. It's in four movements, uh, although some of them are, are played continuously. The first movement begins with this kind of strong cadenza-like motto, the cello uh, sort of starting front and center. Usually in concertos, the orchestra starts and the soloist comes in. In this piece, it begins just with the soloist playing this very powerful and passionate theme. And that leads to that theme I just hummed for you, uh, the main theme of the work, uh, played first by the violas and then echoed by the cellos. So the first movement is a rather introspective kind of pastoral movement, which leads directly into a second little cadenza, a little passage for the solo cello, uh, which is followed by a scherzo, a sort of lively, downright fun and enjoyable, very gossamer light kind of movement, almost like inspired by Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream scherzo. Then there is a, a pause, and the third movement comes in. It's, it's a Schumann-esque sort of... Uh, a song without words or a lullaby, uh, a very brief little gorgeous song for orchestra with the cello with orchestra. And then finally, the finale is a rather big, muscular movement, a very rousing kind of piece. And you expect it just to go to a fabulous, lively finish. And yet, just as he's worked up to kind of a maximum interest and intensity, uh, he sort of breaks the mood of the finale. And there begins this incredible sort of orchestrated cadenza, this orchestrated final utterance, slow, uh, incredibly nostalgic, painful, painfully beautiful, probably four or five minutes in length, this kind of saying farewell to perhaps the world, to the world before the war, to Edwardian England, to to something, a very nostalgic kind of music. And then finally, uh, a brief coda in the, the more fourth movement finale style, bringing the work to a, a rather dramatic close. The cellist, Ralph Kirschbaum is a legendary American cellist born in Dallas, Texas, studied at Yale, and then moved to England, uh, moved to Europe, and then made a career in England where he lived for, I think, more than 40 years uh, and really became kind of the, the reigning British cellist, even though he's American-born, and certainly the reigning British cello teacher, and uh, played all over Europe and, and also came back regularly to the States, but in a, in a way, because of his being based in Europe, in England, was much better known there than here. Uh, I'm delighted i to say that two years ago, he moved back to the United States uh, and has taken up a very prestigious teaching chair at the University of Southern California, the Piatigorsky chair. And so I had played with him last year in Belgrade and just enjoyed him so much. I'd heard of him for years, but had never worked with him that I thought it would be lovely to invite him back as a real, authentic, Dallas-born English cellist to play this all-English program with us. So here now, Edward Elgar's luminous cello concerto from 1919. The cello soloist is Ralph Kirschbaum. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. For the second half of our all-English program, I thought it would be wonderful to essay one of the great works, one of the most dynamic works in all of English orchestral history, a very singular work that is like no other that I know of, uh, this uh, set of seven-tone poems or tone 
tone pictures by Gustav Holst called The Planets is just unique in, in every possible way. The idea of basing the work, not actually on astronomy, but on astrology, uh, the fact that each of the seven movements is so unique and distinctive and draws on so many music traditions, not only Western ones, and, and the fact that uh, in a way this is programmatic music because Holst obviously had very clear ideas of the image he was conjuring with each of these different planets and their individual character. Uh, but it's just a, a work that sounds like no other and that occupies an enormous space. First of all, it's for a, an enormous orchestra. We had almost 100 people on the stage for this concert, including some very unusual instruments that Holst deployed for this piece, including a bass oboe, an instrument that I can't even think of another work that uses it except maybe a couple of operas by Richard Strauss, uh, as well as a tenor tuba, also called a euphonium, which makes very few appearances in concert orchestras, six horns as opposed to the usual four, two timpanists wailing on the timpani at all times, very unusual. Usually we have one timpani, uh, all sorts of, of interesting keyboard sounds, the celesta, the sort of fingered uh, um, keyboard glockenspiel, as well as two harps and lots of other unusual instruments. It's quite a remarkable panoply of instruments that Holst used to conjure this enormous, dare I say, universe of sound. Holst is kind of an interesting figure in English history in that he was actually uh, a very quiet, unassuming gentleman who was a, a teacher, a school teacher, uh, taught music at a girls' school in the countryside for many years and really didn't long for fame and fortune. In fact, after the enormous success of the planets, he was frankly quite chagrined about it and even a little bit cross about the whole thing. He really wanted his other much more intimate and delicate works to be taken more seriously and that yet this work eclipses all others of his works just in its not only its, its stature and its, its uh, ambition, but also in its uh, level of, of success and, and great popularity. Holst was very much interested in Eastern mysticism. Uh, he was, I think, maybe even a practicing Hindu. He was very much taken by Hindu myth and Hindu mythology. He also was very interested in astrology and loved to sort of do astrological forecasting for his friends, for other composers and friends. And he always said that all of these interests fed his, his interest in music, and he took from every experience uh, something that he could then turn into music. So he had this idea in, in the early 1910s to write a, a set of tone poems inspired by the planets and their influence on human activity. He had just been to see the first English performances of Arnold Schoenberg's Five Pieces for Orchestra and was very taken by them. He was also very taken by Stravinsky's works. Uh, and so he decided to write seven pieces for large orchestra, but very different, obviously, in sound and in scope than the, the Schoenberg works, which are much, in a, in a way, sort of harder to, much more abstract works harder to, to understand or to, to appreciate, perhaps. But he initially thought of them as individual tone poems. And actually, at the first performance and performances, not all seven of them were performed. There are, in fact, seven because uh, at this time, the planet Pluto had not yet been discovered. It wouldn't be discovered until 1930. And Earth, uh, this being an astrological forecasting kind of piece, Earth uh, doesn't really figure as one of the, the listed planets in this particular piece. He began the work just before the start of the war in 1914, and the work was completed by about 1916. Uh, and while it had an informal premiere in 1918, it wasn't fully performed until 1920. And uh, the movements all have wonderful titles. Mars, the bringer of war, is the famous first movement, an incredibly bellicose uh, work that is often thought to depict 
the horror of World War I. But of course, that movement was written actually before the outbreak of World War I. And Holst always felt it was a prophecy of the stupidity of war and of the futility of war. And there's this chilling euphonium baritone horn solo in the middle of, of this movement uh, as if a, a general is exhorting his troops to, to slaughter. It's an unbelievable dynamic sort of movement. And uh, a lot of great movie music owes its ancestry to this particular movement. That's followed by an absolutely contrasting movement, Venus, bringer of peace, as gorgeous and introspective and relaxed as Mars is intense and desperate. And I find in this in this movement, in Venus, very much the music often sounds as if it's Indonesian music, as if it's coming from the east, something like, like gamelan music, if you know the, the Indonesian gong orchestras called gamelans. There's something incredibly soothing and still about this, this movement. The third movement, Mercury, uh, the winged messenger, is a fleet, charming, a beautiful little a scherzo, really a fast-moving uh, movement, which I'll, I'll confide in you, is the movement that orchestras have to spend about 50% of the time on because it's so tricky to pass these fast, light little themes around that orchestras really need to work to perfect this movement. The fourth movement is perhaps the most famous movement of the entire work. It's Jupiter, the bringer of jollity. Uh, and this is a, a work that has really become almost like, a, well, certainly in, in a way, the, the middle section, the famous theme in the middle has become almost like a second English national anthem. You'll recognize this one. It's just a fantastic, big, exciting movement. It's followed again by a, a remarkably different kind of movement, Saturn, the bringer of old age. This was the movement that Holst himself liked the most, perhaps because it's the least popular, dare I say. It's all about slowness, about age, and ultimately maybe about acceptance because it becomes very relaxed and quite beautiful at the end. But it's one of the slowest moving pieces in the repertoire and an incredible kind of depiction of, of age and aging. I feel myself getting grayer and grayer every time I listen to it. The sixth movement is a, another sort of orchestral tour de force, Uranus, the magician. And this is a, a, a piece that one just has to believe was somehow inspired by Paul Dukas, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which came out pretty much the same year. It came into being about the same time as the Holst. Holst claimed not to know The Sorcerer's Apprentice, but the two pieces sound so similar, it's it's hard not to believe that they influence each other. It's got one of these kind of yum, dum, 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 kind of has that sort of feeling to it. Then uh, finally, the last movement, the seventh movement, Neptune, in a way perhaps the most radical and daring of all the movements in the planets. Neptune, of course, the furthest planet, and, and this movement essentially being about infinity or eternity in that uh, it's an absolutely singular piece for the time. Nothing happens harmonically. It's among the most static pieces in the entire repertoire. And uh, beautiful sonorities with the celesta and the keyboards and the harps and lots of bells and such things. And yet it's extremely still. It seems to be going absolutely nowhere. It's as if we're looking out into infinite space. And just for one final coup de théâtre, Holst throws in at the very end a wordless women's chorus off stage and gives very explicit directions that he, he wants the women to be in an adjoining room as they as they repeat the last bar, which repeats ad nauseum, there I say, um, ad libitum and perhaps ad nauseum, uh, the door is to be closed very, very gradually until they're simply no longer audible. 
Uh, so we are joined by our friends in the Capital District Youth Chorale who do a wonderful job of this. I'm sorry to say in the live performance, a few people did applaud a little bit before they had disappeared entirely into outer space. I should also say that this last movement, Neptune, is, is quite remarkable because to me, 92% of all music about science fiction seems to be derived from this movement. All those kinds of kinds of things seem to come out of this Neptune movement. So it wasn't. Uh, it was one of those great movements that John Williams and other great film composers have uh, been inspired by, shall we say, a great deal. So now The Complete Planets by Gustav Holst. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion.